Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. No matter the country, every democracy has rules. Some of them are written down, most of them even, but not all of them. Some of them are just good-faith assumptions that all parties agree to abide by until they don't. Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley says he will object when Congress convenes to certify the Electoral College vote next week. We should allow the rule of law to operate. We should allow the legal process to move forward. More than 100 representatives in the House and at least 13 senators are expected to raise challenges in one of six swing states or more. Mr. President, I and 55 other members of the United States House of Representatives object to the electoral votes of the state of Nevada in order to protect the lawful votes of Nevada and all other American citizens. Now, Canada is a different sort of democracy than the United States. We have different rules. We have different checks and balances. We have more independent and nonpartisan oversight. However, we still have political conventions that we expect our elected officials to follow. Those conventions aren't actually enforced by much, other than that's just not how we do things here. In case you're still wondering here, believing that your opponent would always respect the norms of democracy and always play by those unwritten rules goes a long way towards explaining how our American friends found their democracy in such dire straits. So this episode is the ultimate in our ongoing Could It Happen Here? series. How healthy is Canada's parliamentary system? How much of it is strictly bound by the rule of law? And how much of it relies on everyone agreeing to play fair? When one party accuses the other of planning to rig an election in Canada, what do they mean exactly? And how much of our democracy, or any democracy really, is a simple matter of a belief that can't really be written into any kind of document at all. Are you ready for a little Canadian civics lesson? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Stuart Prest is a political scientist, a researcher, and a professor based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hello, Stuart. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Maybe before we start in on Canada, you could explain to me before Donald Trump took office, uh, how confident would political scientists have been in America's system of checks and balances? Well, it's interesting. There are some different answers depending where you look in uh, the discipline of political science. People who study uh, U.S. institutions directly were by and large quite uh, confident. They, they, they look at uh, these institutions that have more or less stood the t- test of time for 200 years, more than 200 years now, and, and survived some, some real challenges. There was a fair amount of confidence there. 
those who took a more uh, a broad uh, view, those who were comparativists, as we call them, who look at uh, variations and in institutions across countries and so on, were a little more nervous because there are some particular flaws in a presidential system that we have seen fail elsewhere and in a number of examples in, in Latin America and, and so on. And so there was a, a little bit of, uh, of concern there and particularly looking at the, the effects of, of certain strains of populism in other countries around the world. I think uh, there there was some variation among political science uh, scientists, but the sort of mainstream view was that the United States has has weathered many storms before, and uh, and this would just be another one. How did Trump manage to break that assumption? Uh, I think we've heard a lot about just destroying the norms. How did that work exactly uh, on a political level? Well, he used uh, a, a number of different techniques here. I think. Uh, Partly, it was a, a function of uh, institutions that had already been been weakened by uh, various processes that he was able to to take advantage of. So it wasn't things that he started uh, or created out of whole cloth, but the, sort of the creation of an, an alternative information universe in the United States was was a, a big one, and that had a process that had been going on for some time with creation of cable networks in the the 1990s and the the uh, advent and rise of the internet and the uh, the role of social media in helping people to create their own information bubbles. It became much easier for people to hear only one side of a story and not really have their assumptions uh, challenged by by uh, reporting that uh, might poke holes in an argument. And so that was a big one. And Donald Trump was able to essentially just say what he wanted the the truth to be. And, and those who were uh, uh, taken in by certain parts of his message, you found some elements of his message appealing. And there were some things he said that a number of uh, uh, of Americans clearly uh, found found appealing. Uh, the, the other elements of it, the things that didn't hang together so well, were challenged, and so he could sort of create this this momentum. And uh, and then having the uh, the Republican Party more or less fall in line behind uh, his messaging, rather than challenging things that were clearly uh, not true and, and not in the interests of of the. Uh, the the country and and it turns out in the uh, in the interest of the party due to the, the the structure of institutions in the United States and and this gets a little more complicated we can talk about the role of uh, the the primary process the ways in which politicians fear. Uh, loss of office, it often has more to do with falling out of line with this dominant view within their their own party. And so so Donald Trump was able to sort of create his own reality, and he was able to uh, find ways to uh, convince a significant com- uh, share of the Republican Party to go along with it. And then so that became a very formidable base from which to try to advance his own interests. As part of trying to understand uh, Trump and America on this podcast, as it relates to Canada, you know, we've asked uh, about the sentiment behind him and disinformation and the role of white supremacy and the rise of hate groups and how all of that applies to Canada in the sort of could it happen here uh, method. But I want to ask you about our specific political system. Uh, is it structured in such a way to prevent the kind of threat to checks and balances that Trump presents? Yeah, I think there are a number of things we can look to in the Canadian sort of the formal institutional structure of the country that would 
make it more difficult for the head of uh, government to to pursue a, a course along the lines of what we're seeing from Donald Trump. And uh, one of the, the big differences that we look at, the differences between, say, a presidential system and a parliamentary system like, like Canada's, is the fact that the, in the presidential system, the, the president is the head of government and the head of state. There is no office whose job it is to basically say no to to the president uh, when they are trying something that falls beyond the, the the constitutional ambit of the office directly in the way that uh, in Canada that's the precisely the role of the governor general so that might be the first place we look where the the prime minister isn't ultimately responsible for uh, determining when they when it's time for them to go. The the governor general plays this important role in in determining who should actually be the uh, the, the first minister, both at the the federal level and and the provincial level. And so that uh, creates a, a certain amount of insulation. And we can unpack that role a little bit. But that's one place to look. Another place to look might be the uh, the ways in which uh, Canada. Uh, tries and and I think has largely succeeded in making the machinery of democracy, the elections themselves, an independent and impartial process. So the oversight of that that electoral process is nonpartisan and and by and large has been above reproach. So we don't see the the, the potential for calling into question the actual uh, process of democracy in the way that we saw in the United States. So we can unpack either of those, and there are there are other things we can look at as well. Well, let's start with the governor general because. For as long as I can remember, and and including how I learned about the governor general way back in uh, political science in university, that position, well, technically having uh, all the duties that you mentioned, is largely seen, I think, by most Canadians as uh, symbolic and as rubber stamping the uh, requests from the prime minister or his party. And can you give me some examples of of when the governor general might step in? Uh, has it ever happened? What does it look like? Well. It uh, it very rarely happens uh, that the, the governor general uh, uh, plays a, a, a real role in Canadian politics. You're quite right. It's it's by and large a very uh, symbolic ceremonial office, but occasionally it matters, and it matters a great deal because it is ultimately determining who should be forming government. So uh, a recent example we saw play out was uh, here in uh, in British Columbia, actually, with the uh, the election in 2017, where uh, Christy Clark won the most seats uh, in the legislature, but did not have enough to form a majority. Because she was the, the premier going into the election, she was, was still the premier after the election was over. And uh, and so uh, she basically had a, a choice to make. She could uh, simply resign and acknowledge that the the other two parties had enough uh, the seats in the legislature to to defeat her, and they were signaling that they wanted to work together, the NDP and the Greens. But she also had this this uh, opportunity to to try to uh, present a speech from the throne and try to win enough votes. She only would have to peel off a, a couple of of seats from the opposition in order to to maintain her majority in the legislature. And if she was able to do that, she could continue on governing. And and uh, so she chose to do that. She presented a, a speech from the throne, and uh, it was defeated. A dramatic, historic day. For the first time in more than half a century, a BC government was defeated on a confidence vote. That means the Liberals are done. So there, she then has another choice to make. She could uh, resign, and and uh, in, in so doing, allow the lieutenant governor to uh, to uh, invite someone else to form a government, or she could recommend to the lieutenant governor that uh, fresh elections should should be called. That the the legislature, in her view, is unworkable. So that's a choice that the the first minister has. But then the lieutenant governor ultimately gets to decide what happens. And uh, in that case, uh, Christy Clark uh, was a, a bit ambivalent. Ultimately, she recommended that a new election should be held, but because there had just been an election and 
And the lieutenant governor looked at the facts and said, well, no, I think uh, uh, the uh, British Columbians have returned their, their views, and uh, I'm going to look to John Horgan to form a new government. It's uh, my honor to stand before you. I've just uh, spoken with the lieutenant governor, and she has asked me if, if I have the confidence of the legislature to form a government, and I've told her that I do. And, I... and so ultimately, the lieutenant governor was there to say no to, to the premier in the, in the final analysis. And uh, in the United States, there isn't really a, a single office who would ultimately just say say no, and that would be the final word on, on who's going to be a governor. We have instead this uh, elaborate process of uh, election certification running through uh, the, the state houses and then ultimately through Congress. And, uh, and so it's that checks and balances that is meant to hold the president to account. But uh, in, in the, the parliamentary system, the lieutenant governor or the governor general plays that much more uh, specific role just to ultimately de determine who should be the, the chief, uh, uh, should be the first minister of government. I'm glad you mentioned certifying the election because that was something that obviously was a huge part uh, of the fight over democracy in the United States. Uh, and Elections Canada made no shortage of hay off of uh, their own system with posts on social media about how, you know, we only use paper, our elections are 100% fair, never in doubt, etc. What is so different about the way we run them uh, that couldn't be called into question, say, uh, by a party who lost a close race? You can think about it in, uh, in terms of institutional insulation. It might be one way to phrase it. So in the American system, and this the, the reason it's structured in this way is a uh, a bit of a historical accident, I guess. It's uh, it's, it's more or less been uh, a similar constitutional process for for more than two hundred years. And at the time the American uh, Constitution was written, it was it was uh, uh, quite an advance in the way in which power was being held to account and, and constrained through processes of elections. It was a revolutionary document in that sense. And, and so there, the the choice at the time was seen to be: Do you uh, place power in the hands of, of a monarch? Uh, uh, or can you have a, a role for the people to to hold that power to account? And so the Constitution was written in such a way that the representatives of the people would be the final arbiters in terms of who would be that that chief executive uh, for for the country. And and so the uh, there was a strong role to play for Congress in certifying the the outcome of the election. And it was up to the states themselves to determine how uh, the elections would be undertaken. And that was a real step forward to have uh, people accountable to the people making those decisions. Since then, in uh, Canada, in the parliamentary tradition, we have built a very strong tradition of an impartial, uh, nonpartisan uh, civil service, and that extends to the conduct of the elections. And so Canada has uh, created uh, a different form of certification of elections. It doesn't run through uh, Parliament it, directly. It runs through uh, effectively an officer of Parliament and the chief electoral officer. So that person is is appointed by Parliament, not directly by the cabinet or, or the prime minister. And it is up to that person to ensure the, the fair conduct of the elections. And so, whereas in the United States, the conduct of, of elections is... Uh, overseen by legislatures, uh, members of legislatures directly. In Canada, the, the conduct of uh, elections is overseen by this impartial nonpartisan uh, civil servant with a nonpartisan uh, civil service uh, working uh, uh, for them or a series of officials. And uh, and likewise, for the determination of, uh, of boundaries for, for ridings in the country, there's a, uh, a an electoral boundary commission for, for each province that, that plays that same sort of role of creating institutional installations so that the, the people who who are uh, drawing the maps are accountable 
and in a nonpartisan, uh, impartial way to the legislature as a whole. And uh, in, in, in many states in the United States, it is uh, much more closely linked to the, the actual politicians themselves in determining the structure of the elections and the, the drawing of, of boundaries. And so that's why we see things like gerrymandering, and that's why we see a political contestation over the determination of whether uh, the, the election was fair or not. In, in Canada, it's basically if the, the, the chief electoral officer says this was a fair election, that's that's the final word. And then the, that is the result that is fed into determining the makeup of the next parliament. I don't know if you saw it, but there was uh, quite a stir recently on social media um, when people began circulating a page uh, that had previously appeared on the Conservative Party's website in which uh, the party accused Justin Trudeau of rigging the next election. Did you see that? Uh, yeah, I did see that. And I saw it. So there was a, a bit of a stir and then the, the page was pulled down with a, a Chico, cheeky sort of 404 message on the Conservative website. Yeah, but when they talk about Trudeau rigging an election, then given uh, what we've just gone through about you know how uh, nonpartisan this process is in Canada, what are they referring to? Uh, I did not go and and see the exact argument they were putting forward, so I don't, I, I can't say I'd have to go and look up what the, what their specific argument was. I can say that that kind of messaging is potentially quite problematic. That uh, if if you don't have a very good reason for saying an election is going to be rigged, that that language is incendiary and. Uh, the, because it calls into question the the, the fundamental uh, processes by which we uh, choose our government and hold our, our governments to account. So I think uh, such language, we have to be very careful making those kinds of uh, accusations. And uh, and so I, it's good to see that uh, if that, that argument they were trying to put forward was not well substantiated, that it was just to, sort of, uh, to try to uh, generate some fundraising opportunities or something like that, uh, that, that it was they've, they've backed away from it. But but just putting that message out there, given that uh, Canadians do watch what's happening in the United States, there is a certain amount of, uh, it's limited, but the, there's a, there are some Canadians who find that sort of Donald Trump type message of skepticism uh, of, uh, of elites and of democratic institutions. There is a, a, some audience for that in the country. And by having a major political party uh, embrace that kind of language, if we were to see that, that would be a real danger because that that um, the fundamental trust in the democratic process is only ultimately as good as uh, the uh, the commitment of the the political actors themselves to to uh, uphold it and, and agree to it. There has to be a, some sort of agreement uh, among all parties to democracy to respect the outcome of the contest. Uh, if if they don't do so, then uh, that is when we start to see democracies weaken and potentially fall, fall apart. I also want to ask you, uh, before we let you go, about what kind of potential for change there is in our system. So, you know, assuming uh, the liberals or even whomever uh, was in power had a majority, how far could they go in terms of changing the electoral system? And I mean that in either direction, because I know the liberals had previously promised electoral reform, which a lot of people saw uh, as beneficial to strengthening democracy. But if they wanted to go in the other direction, you know, how much power do they have to, to change our elections and to change uh, the checks and balances? It's a good question. And it gets into some of the, what you might call the more informal uh, uh, norms and uh, uh, institutions and practices that we have in, in the country that are important uh, components of our uh, electoral guardrails or democratic guardrails, if you want to call that, call them that. So the, uh, 
the Elections Act can be modified by uh, by the government of the day. So uh, it is possible for a government simply to enact uh, legislation to change the way in which Canadians vote. You could see that. You could even see a government, perhaps, or a party ca campaign explicitly on a, a platform of electoral reform, say, and say, if we are elected, we are going to change the way uh, Canadians or whichever province it is vote. And they make an explicit part of their, their campaign platform, and then they are elected. They could say, we have a mandate to do this, and then they could go ahead and do that. A, a party could even try to do that without establishing that kind of um, uh, claim to to legitimacy, uh, but if they were to do so, then we start to run into some of the uh, the more informal uh, uh, checks on uh, parties trying to governments trying to to change our our democratic processes. Because uh, we have had examples of, of parties that have or governments that have tried to uh, change important components of the uh, the way in which we conduct elections more or less unilaterally. There had previously, uh, prior to say about uh, 2000, been an understanding that if we were making changes to the way in which elections were conducted, uh, changes to the Elections Act, there would be uh, some measure of uh, a consensus among the parties that uh, all, we would uh, see the government of the day consult with the opposition parties and not make any changes unless there was a certain amount of acceptance from from the the major uh, opposition parties. And so, around say campaign financing, that that had been previously the expectation when. Uh, Jean Chrétien uh, changed the way in which uh, elections were financed to to uh, reduce the role of uh, corporate and union donations and to move towards a voter subsidy st uh, structure to support political parties, though. He didn't have the the, the total buy-in of all opposition parties. And so that actually created a, uh, a bit of a precedent for parties to try to change some aspects of the way in which elections happen in Canada without uh, consensus among all parties. And so we saw the Conservative government under Stephen Harper tried to do a, a similar sort of thing with the Fair Elections Act. Criticisms of the government's proposed Elections Act changes have expanded beyond the world of politics. Now a group of 150, 960 university professors and academics have weighed in. They've written an open letter that raises a number of concerns. Let me show you a part of what it has to say. We urge the government to heed calls for wider consultation in vetting this bill. While we agree that our electoral system needs some reforms, this bill contains proposals that would seriously damage the fairness and transparency of federal elections and diminish Canadians' political participation. And this is where we get into some of those informal checks because when the the, the Harper government brought forward the Fair Elections Act, it was changing uh, rules in a number of uh, aspects of Canadian elections, such as the, the kinds of ID that would be accepted, uh, the ways in which uh, someone without, say, a uh, a fixed address or, or uh, the, the normal forms of identification could uh, get themselves verified as a, as a voter. Uh, and so it changes to, to those kinds of rules. And there was a, a, an enormous amount of uh, outcry, not just among the opposition parties, but among broader, what you could call civil society. So there were open letters from, from academics, from uh, groups of lawyers, groups of uh, political scientists. It became a, a real uh, point of concern among the broader Canadian public. And while the, the, the Harper government could have just gone ahead and, and enacted uh, the, the, the legislation that they had initially proposed, um, uh, they had the the sort of the authority to do so as a, a government. They had the votes to do it in in the House of Commons. Eventually, they they blinked, and the Harper government was not predisposed to blinking, to backing down from things they were, were tr uh, trying to do. But just the severity, the amount of uh, uh, of uh, 
uh, of outcry made them reconsider some of the things that they were trying to do. And so they uh, ultimately uh, passed a, an amended version of the act, but some of the most controversial elements of it were were taken out. And and so this is, a, so again, another example of the sort of different layers of, uh, of democratic insulation that we have in Canadian society. Not all of them are going to be formal. Uh, ultimately, it's up to the uh, the parties themselves to commit to follow rules and not to uh, cry foul when when there is there is none. And uh, it's up to Canadians more broadly to to keep an eye on things. And that that's the ultimate check on democracy. If a if a party is behaving in a way that is is perceived to be not uh, uh, supportive of, of democracy, then uh, it's incumbent on Canadians to to call that uh, call them to account on that point. And even when it's a majority government, if the pressure is enough, uh, governments want to be reelected, and they will worry about the the, the fallout of uh, an unpopular decision, and they may back down, as we have seen. Does it worry you that uh, in that example seem to rely on an awful lot of informal checks um, and and outcry from regular Canadians? Um, isn't that, and I'm not trying to be um, alarmist here, but it does interest me that that, that kind of informal stuff uh, sounds an awful lot like some of the norms that were just demolished to the south of us. In a sense, yeah, the, it is similar. The, uh, the fundamental uh, foundation of democracy ultimately rests with the people and the people exercising oversight on government. And you can't ultimately legislate every aspect of democratic governance. At a certain point, it's going to depend on people doing the right thing. And uh, and ultimately, the, the final check is that uh, the people are, are watching those making decisions to make sure that they are doing those right things. And when they do not, that there is a consequence. And that consequence is ultimately at the ballot box. So these, these uh, norms help us to understand when something is being done that is inappropriate that we can't necessarily build a strong rule around. And uh, and that requires us to to rely on uh, different communities. So uh, uh, the, the legal community keeping an eye on government to make sure that they're not abusing, say, the ability to prosecute or to, to use the rule of law against citizens. Uh, uh, political scientists keeping an eye on the, the use of, of different aspects of uh, legislative and executive power, essentially alerting Canadians to when there is, uh, is, is an abuse of power. And, and the this is why we rely on different sources of information like the media as well to help alert us to when there is a problem to have independent alternative sources of information. We need all these pieces and we can't simply rely on the state to provide everything. The state can't simply supervise itself. Somebody at the end of the day has to be keeping an eye on those uh, people making the decisions. And uh, so if that seems a little bit uncomfortable, I guess it is, because ultimately we're trusting in a democracy that the people will know what's right and they will make the right choice when it comes time to do so. And uh, and experience tells us that they don't always do that, and that's one of the reasons why we continue to learn about history, teach history, to develop uh, civic literacy in citizens so that we all understand the, the stakes involved. And uh, when the time comes, we do the right thing to safeguard these institutions that have served us so well for so long. Stuart, I find that uh, hopeful, but also terrifying. And thank you so much for helping us uh, puzzle through this. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the opportunity to chat. Stuart Prest, a political scientist out of Vancouver. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find all the other episodes 
about how Canada could eventually find itself in the same position as our friends to the south. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can find us via email, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And yes, we're in podcast players, every single one of them. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, doesn't matter. Find us, rate us, review us, tell your friends, all that good stuff. Thank you for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.